what we're going to be doing is many of you have sent questions in uh, regarding the conference. Most of them have been aimed at raising children. Uh, pr particularly, I appreciated the question that one of you asked about uh, how does your view of the millennium affect your parenting on a day-to-day -day basis? I thought that was great. So uh, I think it was uh, from like seminaryforever at gmail.com or something. So thanks, guys. Uh, but y'all had some fantastic questions. We're going to be going through those, and I'm going to just try to get through as many as possible. If we have any time left at the end, uh, we might be able to open it up uh, to you guys. Wow, We're also going to be nice. videoing it, so we just have um, just a memorial of, of what's happening. But thank you so much for being here. Uh, wanted to just, uh, before we have our interview, go ahead and open us up in prayer and thank God for this food. So let's pray to the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for this day and for the opportunity to spend time hearing from uh, the wisdom of your word as delivered through your instrument, Paul. And uh, Father, he has been a blessing to us. We are grateful for what we heard from him today and yesterday night. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us as parents not to be overwhelmed by all the ways that we're failing. We pray that we would be encouraged instead by uh, what it is that you intend to do through us by the power of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, um, let this time that we have uh, today be glorifying to you as we have time to talk more with Paul on an intimate level. Uh, Father, thank you for this food. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you would bless it to the glory of your name. In your great name we do pray. Amen. Can I say something? Yeah, please Am go I, ahead. Can you hear me? <clears throat> I can't hear myself. Uh, I think that we all need uh, constant gospel encouragement, and I've really dedicated myself to do that. If you're a Twitter follower, uh, I tweet the gospel every morning. I get up every morning, I pray, and I do three tweets that are just pithy gospel reminders. I never tweet about what socks I bought where, because I don't think people care. Uh, uh, my website is full of, of free gospel resources, very active Facebook uh, gospel things. Um, you can subscribe to what's called Wednesday's Word. It comes to your email every Wednesday, and it's a short devotional uh, that's the gospel in everyday life. Um, those are all free resources. I don't do those for any monetary reason. But if you're like me, you need to be reminded of the gospel over and over again. And so take advantage of those things. I don't know if they're up there on the screen, but uh, PaulTrip.com, that's pretty easy. At PaulTrip, hashtag PaulTrip. <laughs> Very good. When I was going, when my mom was taking me, taking my, when my dad was taking my mom to the hospital to deliver me, he said to her, is this trip really necessary? A little late to ask that question, right? Um, well, uh, Paul, it's so good to have you here Thanks. talking to us about getting to the heart of parenting. And um, we are excited to have this opportunity just to ask you some questions. And so we're going to be talking about questions that have been texted into us from folks who have been at this parenting seminar so far. And uh, so I wanted just to begin uh, with a question that a couple of people asked about the nature of conversion and raising children and what it looks like to raise your child and to lead them to faith in Christ. And uh, in particular, uh, what kind of emphasis do you put on the point of conversion in raising a child? Hmm, good question. Uh, 
obviously the the deepest need in the life of every child is for relationship with God. It's a thing for which the child was created. Um, the, the problem is children don't sense that need. They don't, they don't come into the world with a conscious sense of the need of God. And so I think of everything we've talked about the last couple of days as being evangelistic. Because when you're going after the heart, the thing that you're doing is being used of God to plant a sense of need inside of the child. Uh, and, and so it's not like there's, there's normal parenting over here and I step out of normal parenting and I become an evangelist. All of parenting is evangelistic because what I'm ultimately doing in targeting issues of authority, in targeting issues of idolatry, in targeting issues of character, is helping my child to understand their profound need for a Savior. Every parent is an evangelist. And when do you do that? Every day, all the time. Now, there's a second thing. Uh, conversion doesn't mean that you stop and you breathe a sigh of relief and think, well, he's in the bag. I don't have to worry anymore. Because <laughs> although the power of sin has been broken in the justifying mercies of Christ, get your theology right here, the presence of sin still remains and is being progressively eradicated. So uh, I believe one of the things that this generation is really getting, it's really exciting to me, is that you don't just preach gospel to an unbeliever. You preach the gospel to a believer. A believer needs the gospel. Because it's just as possible, impossible for your child to live a pleasing life as a believer, a part a life that's pleasing to God apart from grace, as it would have been for them to save themselves apart from grace. When your child gets converted, parents, please hear this. They don't become a grace graduate. And so they still need that message of grace. They still need insight of the heart. They still need that redemptive attention. And so it's not like we're just marching toward confusion, conversion and then we chill out. Because God's work of redemption is a process and not an event. Well, I have uh, three little boys. Um, Let's pray. Eight. <laughs> Do you have any five? Eight, six, and three. Um, now you can pray. Um, but they are, they are just what, what I would consider to be passionate, excited, uh, Viking-like little boys. And so we just have a great time with them. Uh, they're a lot of fun, a lot of, a lot of excitement in our home. But there's also a lot of broken things, trinkets, as you call them. And when you were talking about parenting, you said that you shouldn't ever discipline unless there's a clear rule. The problem my wife and I often find ourselves in is, okay, I wouldn't have even thought of a rule for that. Like, how do we discipline for that? I mean, we, do we just go to the general rule of destruction? How do you discipline cases like that where you haven't come up with a rule yet and didn't even think of how to come up with that rule? Well, I, I think part of that is, is and, and I think this is really important, and it's one of those things that in all the things that I have to say on a weekend, I have to pick and choose what I'm going to say. Part of parenting, there's a prophetic aspect of parenting. 
where I'm looking forward, I'm preparing my children for the world that they're going to live in. So they live in a physical world of possessions that don't belong to them. I start having that conversation when they're three years old. No, no, no. You can't just take that off the table and play with it. It's A, not yours, and it's B, not a toy. I'm What I'm doing is I'm generally setting the scene for this whole world of possessions, of property, of personal responsibility, so that no, we don't have a rule, but we have a principle in our house that you understand that applies to a whole bunch of areas. Now, rather than letting your children just fall into the hole of temptation, how about helping them? So here's what we would do. Uh, we would be invited into the home of an older couple. We knew they didn't have any children, and we knew they had all kinds of possessions sitting around. So we would sit down with our children. We would do th two things. We'd first have the conversation. You're going to go into a house. Read Daddy's Lips. There are no toys in this house. None. You must not treat anything in that house as a toy. And then we always did this. We would distribute plastic bags to each one of our children and we'd say, choose three toys that you want to take with you tonight. Those will be the things that you can play with. And you can share one another's toys. There's four of you. That means 12 toys. You have plenty of toys to play with this evening. Nothing that you will see in that house is a toy, and you must not treat it as a toy. If you're not doing that, you're setting your children up for failure. Because they don't know the boundaries, and so they're left with their own selfish interest, and obviously they're going to break things. Now, I want to say one further thing, because you need to be encouraged here. You can set all the great rules in a prophetic function with your children. It doesn't ever keep your children from being sinners. So don't feel a sense of failure. You're not the Redeemer, in case you hadn't realized that. Uh, we did this preparatory work with our kids. We're going to somebody's house. They happen to have grandchildren. We walk into the house through the kitchen entrance, sitting on the kitchen floor, is a soccer ball. Spontaneously, before any of us had a chance to breathe, my son kicks the soccer ball with all his might. It flies through the kitchen and hits a crystal lamp in the dining room, chandelier, and breaks it into a thousand pieces. <laughs> I've done that before. I would just like to say, very humbly, that child no longer exists. <laughs> His gravestone is a soccer ball. I mean, you just, you're going to encounter those things. Uh, so if we're encountering those things daily, it's probably more of a parenting issue and preparing. Well, yeah, if, if, if that's just happening all the time, then maybe you need to do better preparatory work of your children. But you will not avoid those situations because that's just the revelation of the heart of your child. And that was 
a hard, hard moment for me. I mean, it was hard. But it was one of those moments that is just, how can that child deny what just happened? I mean, we're all standing there. The crystal is falling from the sky. And that, that provided the opportunity for a really, really important conversation for us. And the shopping for a new crystal chandelier. <laughs> well, uh, that I think is a, a good segue into a question that a number of people asked about lying. So uh, let's say that something has happened and it's not in clear sight and a child is not telling the truth and you know that they have to not be telling the truth. How do you shepherd their heart in that? How do you get to the heart of the problem? Well, first of all, you, you shouldn't be shocked. The Bible very clearly tells you that's exactly what's going to happen. The wicked go astray from the womb. And what it says, says next? Speaking lies. Isn't that interesting? Why does the Bible te- choose that one? Because it's the natural deceitfulness of sin and self-righteousness. I, <clears throat> I don't want to place myself in authority. I don't want to admit I'm wrong. I want to be more righteous than I am. I want to think I'm free of the need for help. And so I lie to myself and I lie to you. I think this is helpful. Know this, that your child lies to himself a thousand more times than he lies to you. And the thing that's sad is our children are very, very skilled self-swindlers. They swindle themselves into thinking they're much smarter and much better than they are. <clears throat> I mean, anytime you knowingly disobey God, you're telling yourself you're smarter than him. And you know better than him. And your way is better than him. All that's very, very sad. Now, because of that, I'm going to be lied to. Uh, sometimes that lie is a cutesy-cutesy denial. Sometimes... It's just a whole superstructure of storytelling that's it's not true. Here, here's what I, I think is important. You don't want to set up a prosecutorial relationship with your child where they come to believe they can't possibly say anything to you that you'll believe. Don't allow yourself to become a cynic because when you do, your kid will quit talking to you. So I have to be willing to live in situations where I don't think that I've been told the truth, but I can't prove it. Because ultimately, my relationship with my child is more important to me than being right at this moment. Because if I lose that relationship, I lose my ability to parent this child. And I know this. I know that God is faithful. He'll give me another opportunity. I've got to tell you this story. This is going to be a longer answer than you wanted, but I'm, I'm going to do it. Uh, so my oldest son, Justin, is was a great kid, sort of eased a parent, a self-starter. He's about 16 years old, working through the early years of his teenage, just the kind of teen that you'd love to love to parent. He comes one weekend and he says, I want to spend a weekend with my friend. Uh, we had no problem with that. It was a kid from our church. We said, sure, go. 
what we didn't understand was he was not spending the weekend with his friend. He was going someplace he knew that we would never allow him to go. He had talked his friend into lying and covering for him. On Saturday, he left Friday night, was going to come home Sunday. On Saturday, I get a call from his friend's mother. His friend had begun to be afraid that he was part of this plot, confessed it to his mom. His mom called me, which is a hard call for her because I was her pastor. Now, I'm immediately in a rage because I'm a bit of a mess. And I go upstairs and I, I say to my wife, you wouldn't believe what our innocent 16-year-old is doing right now. She said, I think you need to pray. I said, I don't think I can pray for him right now. She said, no, I don't mean pray for him. Pray for you. <laughs> As I was praying, this is just as amazing to me. It hit me that God had already begun a work of rescue in the life of my son. God had pressed in on his friend's conscience. God has caused his friend to go to his mother. God has caused his mother to come to me because God loves my boy and was rescuing him. All of a sudden, I wanted to be part of that rescue. And instead of pouncing on him, when the minute he got in the house, I let him come in on Sunday afternoon. I gave him some time. And then I went down to his room and I said, do you mind if we talk for a while? I'd like to talk to you. And I said to him, do you ever think of how much God loves you? He said, yeah, I, I do sometimes, but probably not often. He's wondering why we're having this conversation. I said, do you ever think of how much God was loving you even this weekend? <laughs> now I've sort of got his attention. I said, do you ever think about how much God's grace is always operating in your life, even last night and today? You know what he said? He said, who told you? <laughs> now, instead of me screaming and yelling at him and him hiding and covering his confession, he's now a bit open. And I looked at him and said, Justin, here's what I want to say to you. You've lived your life in the light. It's been a beautiful thing to say, to see. This weekend... You took steps to the darkness. And you can do that. You can learn to lie. You can learn to create a good backstory. You can learn to cover. But I want to plead with you. Don't live in the darkness. Live in the light. That's all I want to say to you right now. we got more to talk about. That. That's all I want to say to you right now. I started to walk out of the room. And I heard behind me this voice of this teenager say, Dad, don't leave. I want to talk to you. I turned around and tears are in his eyes. And he said, Dad, I want to live in the light, but it's so hard. And he began to cry. Now, if I had gotten into his face, would we ever have gotten there? You see, it's a natural tendency for your children to lie. But the way that you approach that could encourage them to lie. Does that make sense? Because you come on so strong and so condemning that you make it too costly for them to tell the truth. Rather than encouraging their ability 
to step out of the fear of honesty. Honesty is not a thing to be afraid of. Lying is a thing to be afraid of. How do I encourage honesty? And how do I make lying look like an ugly thing? Well, uh, we know that uh, in a number of countries it's become illegal to discipline your child using a rod and, uh, or any kind of spanking instrument. Um, it's probably going to happen in the United States uh, at some point. I mean, that's what I would assume. Um, but I already, uh, I think in my family, and I'm sure others here too as well, feel a certain tension when you're in public and you know your child needs to be disciplined. And you don't want that discipline to get too far removed from the event so that it doesn't make sense. So how do you encourage parents that are in public how to deal with disciplinary situations? I, I think you you have to be wise. Uh, I think uh, that you have to understand your culture. You have to understand the imbalance of your culture. You have to understand how that puts your family at risk. Uh, you do not have the liberty to do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. How silly it would be for one moment of discipline to lose your children forever. That's just silliness. Uh, now, I don't agree that you can you you can't delay discipline. We did it all the time. We'd be in a mall. It was not the time to take care of this, and I would kneel in front of one of my children and I would say, "You know that what you're doing right now is wrong." In fact, you know that you're probably taking advantage of this moment because you know your daddy can't do what he would do when he was at home. But I want you to look me in the eyes. When we get home, we will have a talk. The first thing that's going to happen when you get home is you and daddy are going to go in a room and we're going to discuss what's happening right now. We would see this happen. Our child would have the normal set of emotions while they were at the mall. And the closer we got to home, the more serious they would get. <laughs> because they knew. Make appointments with your kids. Make them clear. Uh, and here's what I think about this. God is sovereign. The Bible says he chooses the exact place where you live and the exact length of your days. God chooses your address. And so... The limits that we're all facing are under his sovereignty. You're always in this fallen world dealing with limits. How does it, what does it look like to live wisely inside of the limits that God has set for me? I'm uncomfortable with a lot of what conservative evangelicals are saying about this issue. Because I know families who in making a stand have lost their ability to parent their children. Is that where we want to be? So be wise. Wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. Understand your culture. Understand where your liberties are at stake. Understand where it's wise to fight. Understand where it's wise not to make a public spectacle and to do something in the privacy of your home that will retain your ability to parent your children. Be wise. Um, now, when we were in the conference earlier today, you talked about how some parents can get a little bit weird and even creepy because they try so hard to be friends with their kids and maybe their kids' friends as opposed to being a parent. 
Um, but at the same time, we, we ought to want to befriend our children. I mean, I was struck by the way that you give analogies or illustrations of how you speak to your kids. I think to myself, that sounds like a really good friend, a wise friend to have. So could you talk about that balance of yeah, being I, a parent? And uh, one of the ways that I, I, I said earlier is that your children should have no doubt that you love them. They should have no doubt that you are approachable, that you are relaxed, that you're not full of your, yourself, that you're not dictatorial, that you understand the importance of fun, of relaxation, of leisure, of all those things that make life comfortable, that you're, you're not just a lecturer going someplace to happen or a prosecutor going someplace to happen. That's all very, very important. But you can't do that in a way that compromises the position of authority that you need to be in in your life. And look, I think parents who try too hard, who become those awkward, rather creepy parents, they're not doing that for their children. They're doing that for themselves. They're trying to get identity through the acceptance of their children. And that's dangerous. Because I'm actually going to be called of God to say some of the hardest things my children have ever heard. Isn't that true? Because here all the, here's all the gospel works. If you don't accept the bad news, the good news won't mean anything to you. So I have to bring bad news to my children. And I want them to understand that this person who is bringing bad news to them is bringing it because of a good heart. Uh, so there is a friendship aspect to parenting. But it's not, I'm your friend because I dress cool and I know the name of the latest group and whatever. Yeah. In our church, we have a number of single parents. I'm sure uh, our other friends that are here um, that are at other churches have folks who are uh, divorced and, and have split custody. And we had a couple of folks ask, do you have any advice for us as we're trying to, to raise our children to love Jesus and to know the grace of the gospel but we're working sometimes with half time uh, with our kids and also working against uh, maybe a, a different philosophy to raising children. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I'm going to put this in the context that's larger than just single parenting or broken or blended families. It's a context that our parenting work is always in a fallen world. And that fallenness will enter your door and that fallenness will set limits. Maybe the limit is a physical illness that means a dad can't be what he wants to be for his children. Or a mom can't do what she would like to do with her, with her children. Some of you know I've been, I've been sick. Uh, in a shocking set of circumstances, I've lost the majority of my kidney function. About 35% of my kidney function left. That has forever altered my life. Uh, there are things that I did six months ago that I'll never be able to do again. Those are limits that are set for me. Uh, so as you're a single mom, I think it's important not to buy into I've got limits set on me like no one else ever has to experience in life. 
Because all of us are hit by the brokenness of the world. All of us face unbelievably hard uh, limits. Maybe there's a dad who's providing well for his family and some boss in a different city wants to make more money for the bottom line and fires 1,200 workers. And not only has he lost his job, that division of industry doesn't exist anymore. That's a horrible thing to face. That's going to affect his, his role as a dad and a father. So, uh, what I have to do is understand the impact of those limits on my functioning as a parent. Uh, if one person is trying to do the job that God assigned for two people to do, there's no way that's going to happen. Single moms, if you're here, are you hearing me? You're never going to be father and mother to your children. You do not have to load that burden on your shoulders. God doesn't call you to be what you're unable to be. Now what He does is surround you with the resources of the body of Christ. Who are the people that you can bring into your life? Who are the men that you can bring into your life that can fill up some of those gaps for you? I have a very dear friend who is a single man who has been a father to generations of boys. He's opened his home. He's opened his life. He's always got guys around him, guys with him. Uh, he pours into life, does Bible studies with him. He's entered into the life of broken families and he's had an incredible ministry. There are young men who are following God or following God because he was willing to give himself. Now, body of Christ, hear this. Parenting is the work of the body of Christ. We're all in this together. These children belong to all of us. Reach out to these ones who are alone. Reach out to these ones who are facing brokenness. Reach out to these ones who are in a world where two parents are saying different things. It's very, very hard. And provide resources that they don't have by themselves. Yeah. Living in the context of a fallen world, we face all kinds of difficult challenges. Uh, some uh, are taking children in under foster care and adoption. And, and some of those children have faced extreme trauma. Uh, do you have any encouragement uh, that you would offer those parents to help them? I think it's very, very important that, let's say, a child comes in your house at seven or eight years old. They've been through a traumatic background finally uh, broke down where the children are taken away or they're from another culture or whatever. You can't assume that you have the level of trust that you would have with your child who was with you from day one. Think about this. If my child has been with me from day one, they have a remarkable ability to trust me. I've been there when they were vomiting. I've been there when their birthdays, I've been there through a variety of experiences. When I walk into the room, they know this is a good-hearted man. I don't always like what he does, but I know that I can trust him. 
That eight-year-old child has none of that. And I would encourage you, you don't lead with discipline, you lead with relationship. Because, knows the biblical model, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. What does God do first? He makes relationship with us. He invites us into His family into his family. He lets us know that we are remarkably unconditionally loved and then he starts the process of sanctification and discipline. Prioritize relationship. Build relationship with the child. Build that trust. Prioritize the necessity of that trust. You may have to deal with some messiness in the area of discipline until you get to the point where you're ready to do the thing that requires a mutuality of trust. Uh, I'm afraid that I think it's particularly men, they go in all guns blazing, uh, taking a personal offense at the rebellion of this child against authority, and they just destroy the relationship. That's good. Um, now, you, you mentioned a really helpful five questions last night. Uh, could you remind us of those? It's a bad time to ask. Five questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, to help your child. Get what was going on? Mm-hmm. What were you thinking and feeling that was happening? That's heart stuff. What did you do in response? Behavior. Why did you do it? What were you seeking to accomplish? What was the result? And at what age would you start working through those questions with your children? Are you working at three years old with your children for I, that? Or? I I think you talk to your kids very young. Parents say, my child's five years old. Can I talk to him yet? I think, yeah. Yeah, five years ago. Uh, Look, your child is is, uh, building this worldview. They're interpreting. They're putting pieces together. Give them the right pieces. They're not going to be able to verbally tell you what they're thinking. They're not going to be able to have extensive conversation with you, but they're getting pieces. I mean, it's been amazing to me with Lily, little Lily, where I can say, Lily, don't pick that up. It's dirty. She looks at it. She looks at me. I said, no, it's dirty. Now, could she write a paragraph on what dirty means? No, but she knows tone of voice. She knows look on the face. She has a sense that that's a prohibition. She has no ability to discuss any of that with you. My first shock of this was when my son Justin was nine months old. Nine months. This little human being walked at eight months. This seemed like a weird physical miracle. <laughs> he looked like way too young to be walking. He looked, he was about the size of a teddy bear. And he's walking. <laughs> and we knew right away that there was a whole world of danger now uh, available to him. And so I toddled this little one over to the electric wall socket. And I said, You must not touch this. You must not put anything in it. Because it's dangerous. It'll hurt you. While he's picking his nose. Now, 
some people will say that's a, that's a completely ridiculous, wasted conversation. You want to hear what happens next. The next day, I'm reading the newspaper, and I hear this little pitter-patter of, step, of steps coming down the hallway. It's Justin. He gets to the opening into the living room, and he sees that I'm reading the newspaper, and he thinks I can't see him. He doesn't understand peripheral vision. And he makes a beeline for the wall socket. But you got to see what happens next. Just before he reaches out to touch it, he looks back at me. What does that tell you? He knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't understand electricity. He doesn't understand that conversation. But he understands he's doing something that he shouldn't do. Or he would have never looked back. Nine months old. So start having these conversations young. Uh, you're not going to get... A good answer at first, but you're beginning to give pieces of a way to think about life, the way to think about yourself, the way to think about right and wrong, the way to think about God. Your child will progressively assemble those pieces. Start early. Have those conversations often. Uh, because if this child is going to assemble a worldview, why not early give them the right pieces? You're not going to get the, the feedback. Sometimes it'll just be a waste. But be willing to waste your time. Uh, I d had this long conversation with one, I, one of my sons who said that when he grew, grew up, he wanted to be a lion. And so I, being the theologian that I am, launched into a long conversation about the image of God in man. And so at, got, when it got done, I said, do you understand what Daddy said? He said, yes, I'll just be a giraffe. <laughs> good. Well, somebody was asking, um, what do you do if your little child, say, three-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed little kid, uh, somebody asked this, um, and I know the answer, but I just want to ask it to you, let you answer. <laughs> uh, what do you do if they keep on getting out of bed uh, say coming into your bed, how do you discipline that child? Uh, how do you communicate to them that they need to stop doing that in the middle of the night? Well, it's it's important in uh, parenting to be unwilling to forsake your place as a parent. God doesn't say to us, I'm tired of exercising authority, just go for it. Uh, and so, if, if it is unhealthy, irresponsible, disobedient for you to get, get out of bed, you need, I don't mean this in a challenging, mean way, you need to let your child know that they will never outlast you. It won't happen. And parents, it's not a solution to get in bed and sleep with them. It's not a solution to take them to your bed. It's really uncomfortable to have a teenager sleeping with you. <laughs> so I'll tell you what I did, and I'll tell you what I've had other parents do. I say to my child, it's, it's not healthy and it's wrong for you to get up every night in the middle of the night and come toddling down the hallway. Uh, that disturbs your sleep. 
it disturbs mom and dad's sleep. It's bad for you and it's unloving for your family. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you never to get out of bed again. And to help you tonight, when you go to bed, I'm going to sit by your bed in a chair. And every time you start to get up, I'm going to put my hands on you and say, no, dear, you must not get up. Daddy loves you. Stay in bed. You do that for two, three, four nights, your child will never get up out of bed again. Because they begin to realize this person is serious. This person loves me. And what happens is, if you break the habit, natural sleep will kick in. This child's body is wired to sleep. They're actually interrupting natural things that are meant to go on in their body. Now, you have to be willing to have some sleepless nights in order to create that sleep sleepiness. But you will. Uh, now, again, what are we dealing with? We're not dealing with sleep. We're dealing with the fact that this child wants what he wants. When he wants it, he wants his own way. And if I don't want to sleep at night, if I don't want to be in my bed, I'm not going to be in my bed. I mean, We've watched our children who were obviously tired fighting sleep. They're falling asleep trying not to fall asleep because they just don't want to give in. And so you have to have that kind of uh, combination between between bullheadedness and patience. Uh, unwilling to participate in something that's unhealthy. We have a number of uh, pastors here at the conference with the wives, and uh, one of the questions I thought was really helpful is uh, just how can churches do a better job of equipping parents to parent in a way that uh, has a healthy understanding of grace and its influence in a, a child's life? Oh, I, I mean, I, how much time do we have? Um, it is one of the burdens of my heart. Because I think what... What no one wants to have happen, but actually happens, is the gospel of grace that we hear on Sunday doesn't live in our families. That we present this message of grace on Sunday, but what rules our house, our homes, is law, 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 law. Here's the system. It's in marriage, and it's in parenting. It's law condemnation, and punishment. How do most marriages exist? If you keep my law and you make me happy, I'll be nice to you. If you don't, I'll mistreat you in some way. There's no grace in that relationship at all. No wonder it doesn't work. We do the same thing with our children. Uh, and so it's not enough, pastors, are you hearing me? It's not enough to preach a theology of grace. You must then help your people understand the implications of that grace for the principal locations and relationships of everyday life. Because the ultimate goal of theology is what? Transformed living. Theology is not an end in itself. Theology is a means to an end. And the end is a holy life. And so your sermon is not done because you've exegeted the passage well. 
Because you can have people who understand the content of the passage who don't have a clue how to apply it to their everyday living. And I want to say this, because I have a pastor's heart, I have a preacher's heart. I mourn the fact that I hear so many good sermons that stop too soon. Because how about turning and saying, this is what these truths mean for the workplace. This is what they mean for marriage. This is what they mean for parenting. Your, your people are living real lives, real dynamic lives, where some philosophy of life, some theology of life, is going to shape the way they respond to the issues of life. And so what you have to do is the gospel is not just a theology, it's a new way of looking at everything in your existence. You don't just believe the gospel, you live out of the gospel in your marriage, in your parenting, with your finances, with sexuality, whatever. And that's the only thing that I ever write about, is the gospel in everyday life. I say that my my writing career is the biggest scam in Christianity. I've only ever written one book. I just retitle it every couple of years. Uh, because I've just, I'm just taking that same message of the grace of Christ and turning and looking at another issue in life. Help your people do that. Well, our time's uh, about up, so uh, let me just say thanks for taking this time to answer our questions. And uh, thank you for being here. And uh, you're welcome to, to stay and to talk a little bit, uh, to enjoy yourselves. Uh, but we are officially dismissed. Can I ask for prayer? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can pray for me. Uh, I would like to be able to say to you that what I've gone through is just been a physical struggle, but it's been a spiritual struggle as well. Uh, God has revealed how proud I was in physical health and my ability to produce. Uh and revealed things in my heart that I was, didn't think was there. I'm very thankful for that. Uh, in the midst of this, God has birthed in me a deeper passion for His grace. When things you depend on are taken away, you run to what can't be taken away. And that's been a good thing. But uh, I will live with things the rest of my life that I would wish were never in my life. Uh, but I would say this. If this is what it's taken for God to get at issues of my heart, then my sickness has been worth it. Because I'm going to chuck this body someday. Uh, and I'm, I'm very thankful. But that's an up and down struggle, so pray for me. The thing to pray is that I would, with joy, live everything that I, that I teach. I'm very aware it's much easier to teach it than it is to live it. And I, too, am a man still in process. Blessings. Well, let me um, just say real quick, uh, just given that, I want you all to pray for him, but Ramon, would you be willing just to stand and pray loudly where you are for Paul, for what he's just asked us to pray for? Lord God, we do thank you that we can come to you with all our all our needs, with all our anxieties, all our shame, all our disgrace, every sickness. 
and the spirits of things will always be with you and you can hear us. Because you understand. You've entered into the mess of this world and experienced it world. So you understand, you sympathize. You can always approach the throne of grace. Amen. Finding grace to help us. Abundant grace to help us in constitutionally. So we thank you for our brother Paul, Lord God, his vulnerability, Lord, his openness and Amen. Thank you, Mom. You are dismissed.